Good morning. Um, it's always a production with the mask and the notes and the Bible, but I'm glad to be with you and I'm glad to open up the scriptures and to study them with you once again this week. And uh, if you're new, once again, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you're here again, we're also really glad you're here and we just invite you, and I'm going to say this again at the end, to, to hang out with us a bit and come and hang out with us outside after the service. We'd love that. Um, and also, if you're joining with us in virtually on YouTube, we're also glad you're here. And the way that you can connect is uh, using email. Uh, we'd love to know you're there with us. Uh, you maybe leave a comment, be so bold. Uh, but if you can't um, or don't want to, there's also email, uh, Sid at North Cross Church or info at North Cross Church. So this week, we're continuing our brand new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week, I introduced the letter to the Ephesians as God's I Have a Dream speech. God's I Have a Dream speech. It's of God's vision for the church as a global, truly equal, truly free community. And this kind of living, breathing authentication of the gospel, the power of the gospel message. But we confessed two realities as well last week, and we need to continue to, to confess them. The first is this, local churches like North Cross often fall far short of feeling powerful, or truly equal, or truly free, let alone full of the very belonging that we all each deeply desire. But then we also confess that the church we want can sometimes become the enemy of the church we have. That the church we want can sometimes, maybe often, becomes the enemy of the church we have. You see, the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus whose birth, life, death, and even resurrection um, were, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a miracle that didn't look like a miracle. A miracle in the form of the powerless and the vulnerable and the unimportant. An ordinary-looking miracle. And so the title and approach of our sermon series for Ephesians is this, Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary-looking miracle. So along these lines, last week we discussed Paul's gospel-drenched greeting in verses 1 and 2, and this week we're going to look at the next four verses and sort of the opening of this prayer that Paul launches into. Verses 3 through 6, like the rest of this opening prayer, are theologically and emotionally fully loaded. And so it's all the more reason to quiet our hearts and beg God to shine through his word for us and to us. So would you pray with me and for our time together uh, in God's words to us this morning? Father, um, I do pray that you'd meet us by your words, by your spirit, through your word. Would you meet us wherever we are? Whether we read that passage and thought, that is thick and I don't want to be here. <laughs> Or you read that passage and said, this is exciting. I wonder what I can learn. Or maybe uh, we're here and we're thinking, it's beautiful outside. <laughs> um, and maybe that makes us want to go outside right now. And maybe that makes us just rejoice that in your goodness right here and right now. But we're all there and we're all in those places in between. And I pray that you'd meet us. Jesus, would you come to us, the word made flesh, and would you show us who you are. Would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? 
And we ask for this because you asked us to ask for this. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, as some of you may have known, maybe you don't know, I, I spent about a year of my life systematically marching, well, watching my way through the Marvel movies on Disney+. Plus. Um, okay, so I had, I'll confess, I had seen the occasional Iron Man, seen the occasional Thor, whether it was in the movie theater or on DVD, even, that old, or streaming. But uh, as a sort of get me through COVID, I stayed up wait, way too many nights watching all the Marvel movies in the Disney Plus timeline order. That's my personality, if you haven't figured that one out by now. And it was actually mostly worth the time. And yes, I would argue even sometimes mostly worth the discipline it took to get through some of those movies. Not all of them were created equal. Watching those movies in that order really paid off, especially with the last two movies, the last two Avenger movies. Um, you know, I was invested, right? Before I got to Infinity War and Endgame, I knew the characters. I knew their quirks, their flaws, their virtues, their powers. I'd even watched the extras in the ending credits. I was in. <laughs> and so like many fans, I was absolutely devastated by the ending of Infinity War. Spoiler alert, by the way. I'm going to talk about that, so you need to cover yours. It's okay. Thanos, uh, who's the bad guy, his name means death in the Greek, actually, uh, defeats all the Avenger superheroes all work fighting together, and he gets, basically, Thanos gets all the Infinity Stones, and he snaps his fingers, and he destroys half of all the life in the universe. And like so many fans, that's how it ends. And I was just frustrated with how this ended, and I was frustrated with like, how Thanos got the most important stone he needed. Dr. Stephen Strange did what he promised Iron Man he'd never do. Dr. Strange just gave Thanos the time stone, and then in exchange for Iron Man, Tony Stark's life. And I watched in total disbelief that you could end a blockbuster movie this way. I couldn't believe it, complete shock, as Dr. Strange dramatically gasped, Tony, there was no other way. And he crumbles into dust, right? And all of a sudden, so does the rest of half the population of, of the planet, let alone universe. And this was, by the way, a reference to an earlier scene when Dr. Strange had said to Tony, among others, I went forward in time to view alternate, to view alternate futures, to see all the possible outcomes of this coming conflict. And Dr. Strange saw a total of 14,605,000 possible futures. So Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, asked the question, right? How many did we win? And Dr. Strange replies, one. Just one. And so we're led to believe that Dr. Strange gave the times to Thanos, which caused half of all the life in the universe to pulverize into dust because that was the one and only way out of 14,600,005 future possibilities that the Avengers would ever save half the known universe. And well, maybe for some of you, you're right back in that scene, those scenes in that movie, you watched it, you stayed up too late, just like I did. And you're right back in Infinity War. Uh, and others of you, I kind of just lost you a long time ago. Uh, maybe it was the name Thanos. It was certainly named Dr. Strange and you're out. Comic books and sci-fi is not your thing. <laughs> and I get that. So whether you're sort of standing on your feet internally and going, Marvel, 
or you're meh about all this, that's okay. But all of us are asking the same question. What in the world does this have to do with Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six? And I would say that the emotional reaction that I had and so many others had to Dr. Strange handing over the weapon that needed to destroy the entire, the half the universe based on a calculation of 14 million possibilities, that sense of sort of simultaneous frustration and also confusion is what verses three through six can provoke inside of us, right? We read phrases like, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. It can make us uncomfortable, even if we believe in doctrines like unconditional election. And there's this feeling like, did God have to make it work that way? Or there's sort of the reasoning we often hear about these kind of verses makes it feel like God's hands were tied. He's kind of looking at us, go, shrugging, going, it was a one out of 14,600,005 possibility. I just couldn't do anything different. But what if God, through Paul, meant to share this truth about his ways of salvation, not to discourage or confuse us, but to encourage and reassure us. What if our approach to verses like Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 and theological topics like election were an exercise in missing the point, like looking through the wrong end of a telescope, or even better, looking through a microscope when we need to look through a telescope. You know, that is like looking down to count the number of life possibilities versus gazing up in wonder. You see, God gave us Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six, in order to convince us, to convince us of his deep, deep love for us. And out of that love, for us to give our lives laser-like purpose to go and to love others in that way. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're talking about the deep, deep love of God for us and for the ways that that love motivates us to live our lives with purposeful love. And we can uncover God's intentions for these verses by walking through our passage, which thunders at times like a waterfall, and yet at the same time fires precisely like the binary code of your laptop. And so our sermon outline goes like this. First, verse three, we're introduced to the gripping and grandiose setting of God's deep, deep love. Second, verses four through five, we're gonna describe, these verses describe the intimate and intricate details of God's deep, deep love. And third and finally, we're gonna look at verses four and six and their emphasis on the practical and propulsive goals of God's deep, deep love. Remove that. So let's begin with the beginning in verse three and let's look at the setting, the grandiose and gripping setting, I would say, of these verses. So if you look there with me, you'll notice that we're just right, we're going right in order. The first two verses we looked at last week were sort of a greeting. Paul making his introductions. He's saying, hey, I'm Paul. He's speaking to original audience. We learned that they're the Ephesian Christians, Christians that live in modern day Turkey, right on the coast of the Mediterranean coast. And he's got a message for them. And he's pretty clear about his summary statement. He's saying grace and peace, grace and peace. And from there, we expect Paul to launch into things um, that, that are like, he's in, a, he's in prison, in a house, in Rome. We kind of expect him to talk about that. 
Or we expect him to sort of say, hey, I've heard news from the messengers from Ephesus about how your church is doing. Let's talk about that. Or we expect him, like his other letters, to say, hey, based on the news I heard about your church, here's what I'm praying for. But what's interesting about Ephesians is that it bursts our humdrum expectations of another letter or another book of the Bible because Paul does this really interesting thing where he just explodes out into what Scotty Smith calls one magnificent run-on sentence of wonder. Like, this is 202 Greek words without a period. This is straight 12 verses, verses 3 through uh, 14, unending. A praise-filled, a prayer-filled praise, a verbal tinker tape parade celebrating who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what this God has done, is doing, will do, in each of his persons from before the foundation of the world until the day that God delivers our personal heaven-come-to-earth inheritance just because he loves us deeply and he loves us dearly. And while there's something to be said for savoring this whole prayer at once, all at once, in one sitting, it's a lot to take in. And so we're doing it in this sort of, it divides itself out into three pieces and we're looking at each piece at a time over the next couple of weeks. So let's begin with the first piece in verse three. Paul's describing God the Father. He's describing how God the Father is the origin or fountainhead of every good gift, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is the way Paul puts it. As Paul continues detailing, and I mean that in both senses of the word, giving us details, but also meticulously cleaning out our previously held uh, notions about who God is. As Paul does this for the person of God the Father, Paul's prayer also surges forward into God's work. That is, we're leaning into, Paul's leaning us and leading us into God's past tense work on our behalf. God has worked out his eternal purpose in his plan. He perfectly placed his love and he poured out his grace thickly. His undeserved pleasure and treatment are foaming, fizzing in generous measure into the most tightly held heart spaces we possess. But before we get carried away, too late, right? It's too late. In verses four through six, we want to sort of pause for a second. I want to pause for a second and consider how verse three uses one word, blessed. It uses it in two different ways. The first blessed is this. Blessed be the Lord, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this blessed refers to what we as human beings would call praise or worship. Okay, so it's another way of saying praise or worship. According to the Bible, of course, the issue is not whether we praise or worship, whether we're internally murmuring or externally proclaiming blessed be, blessed be about a person, a blessed be about a situation, blessed be about a life status. I mean, just look at social media. We're doing that all the time. The issue is what we are blessing with our time. What are we blessing with our money? What are we blessing with our, with our heart's affections? And answering the what question is actually kind of hard and it requires this two-step we have to recognize what we're already adoring. And then we also have to redirect oftentimes that adoration back to God. So let's just start with the recognizing for a second. How do we diagnose what we are worshiping? 
I recently found a fellow pastor, Brian Habig, pretty helpful and frankly convicting about this point. As I listened to him, he asks what we do, what do we reach for when we first wake up? Is it a work email? Is it an Instagram feed? What are we looking for there? Or what do you always say yes to even when it makes you exclude other things and other people that are important to you? Or here's the one I just found I couldn't hide from. What is it when you think about your life that really lights up your heart? What is it that makes you feel alive? Thinking this is why I'm here on this planet. To feel this, to do this, to be a part of this. And as I've thought about that last question, when do I feel the rush of purpose and life after affirmation? I, I went mentally through a lot of different things, a lot of inventories. I went from, what is it, being a husband? Was it about being a father, being a friend? Was it about maybe preaching a great sermon, having a great, deep, helpful conversation with someone? And then I just decided to get really honest because all of those things are just means to the same end. What lights me up from the inside is being liked back. That's my thing. I just want people to like me back. And it's just embarrassing to admit, but I'm gonna do it. Whether my day shines or feels overcast depends on whether I feel important or I feel appreciated. Just liked and really just well thought of and spoken about behind my back in a good way. That, makes, that means the world to me. And while there's plenty of good God-given dignity to wanting to feel affirmed, I go through my entire day silently asking every single person I meet, no matter how trivial the encounter, do you like me? Well, do you like me? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. For, for me, my heart cries out, blessed be to that person that likes me back. Blessed be Mark Andrews, okay? And my mind goes to rework, to recreate whatever I did in that moment to get that kind of affirmation? What did I do to please that person? But what about when our achievements can't bring about the kind of belonging that we want, right? It's a miserable way to live, to live off of the throwaway scraps of other self-involved people. I, like all of you, we need to redirect our hearts to, to blessed be God for the first time or the 10,000th time. How do I and how do we do that though? With God's second use of the word blessed, right? Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That phrase, blessed us in Christ, that means everything, everything. What it means is by believing in Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, we get what Christ has. What happens to him happens to us. What's true of him is now true of us. In and through Jesus, we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that includes the things we want the most desperately. Things like affirmation and importance and appreciation. And it's there always and forever in Christ whether other people snub me, and even when I don't feel like it's there, it's still there because it's outside of me. And really verses four and five 
and all their intimate and all their intricate details of God's love. That's why God is sharing these with us. Not to frustrate us, not to confuse us about the mechanics of how salvation works, but to deeply convince us that he actually likes us. That he actually likes us unconditionally. And he has for a long, long, long time. Even before time began. Yes, for my note takers. We are now in the second point. Okay, verses four through five. And, and I get when we hit verses four and five, we may just want to avoid this theology at all costs because it can feel divisive or it can feel irrelevant to my life. But the way we think about God needs to reflect the Bible's depth and breadth. And it's deep and wide here. So let's go eyes wide with wonder into these verses. And I'm going to begin by translating from the Greek as literally as possible the most contentious and perhaps complicated parts of verses four and five. So here's what they say. Even as or just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world or foundation of the cosmos, in love, he, the Father, having predestined us for adoptions as sons, that is heirs, through Jesus Christ, into him, the Father, according to the good judgment, or that is pleasure, of his God the Father's will. Clear as mud. Okay, so here's the takeaway summary of that exchange. Before, from before the foundation of the earth, God shows those whom he desires for salvation, not on the basis of any merit in them, but purely on the basis of his will, out of sheer grace alone. Verse four is before the foundation of the world, and verses five, according to the pleasure of his will, they emphasize that God's election is unconditional. It can't be based on any present merits at the time of the choice, right? Because when did he make the choice? He made it, there was nothing, there was no one in existence except for God before the foundations of the earth, right? It was not based on any future self-made merits, whether good behavior or self-awareness or good spiritual choices, nor was salvation about being born in the right place at the right time or to the right family. It's all in our verses according to God's good pleasure, his will. And the basis of God's choice of salvation is grace and grace alone. As theologians like R.C. Sproul like to remind us, grace that is owed is not grace. Grace that is earned is not grace. And immediately, the flags wave in your hearts and minds. Objection, okay? Question. And if you're a Christian, maybe you're saying, that's not how it felt to become a Christian for me, Sid. That's not how my conversion felt. It seemed like I chose to give my life to Christ, not that the other way around. And what I want to say is while verses four and five are suggesting that Jesus did, in fact, lay his life down for you specifically, that they are not denying that you and I had to make a choice to follow him. That's a tension we have to hold. So let me put it another way. I did college ministry for 10 years, 10 years. And I got the same set of questions for a decade. 
And one of the questions would inevitably, someone was on the verge of dating somebody, someone was deep in the heart of dating somebody, someone had just broken up with somebody else, and they always asked the question. <laughs> We'd start talking about my relationship with my wife, and they would go, was she the one? The one? Were you predestined soulmates? Is there a soulmate? Do I have a predestined soulmate? Some variation of that question, right? And there's really two ways to answer that question. Yes, from God's perspective, there is one reality with one script. And I was always meant to meet and to marry Tear Druin. But from a human perspective, there is a way in which I met Tear and decided to marry Tear. And when I did that, she was not the only possible person I could have married. And what I mean by that is not that I was a catch. What I mean by that is that there were lots of other women on the planet that I felt subjectively I could have met and married. And looking for the one would have crippled me from making any such choice, right? And so it's the same with God. We think of him and we imagine him like Dr. Strange, right? Like 14 million, 600,000 and five future possibilities. And then he sort of asks us to sort of shrug. He just, he shrugs in resignation when we think about that. Like we picture him just going, sure. And we think it's all up to us or it's all up to him, whether we win, whether it's dating or whatever else. And so we either ignore God's sovereignty completely and make people only responsible or we ignore our responsibility completely and make God's sovereignty only work with him. Why couldn't God use our choices to accomplish his will? And furthermore, why can't his purposes influence our choices? What if it were a both and an either or? The second objection to unconditional election is often the most strongly felt, right? It's unfair. <laughs> it's unfair, right? Again, this is a fair question. It's what about all the people God didn't choose? After all, if God didn't choose the best and the brightest, Christianity is not like college admissions, right? None of us submitted a resume and God went, hmm, you're, I'll take you. You're in the Ivies or whatever, okay? And our 21st century American democratic intuition is that all, we should all be able to get in on the decision in some way, you know, be in the room where it happens, right? Or somehow get a place at the table when that decision is being made. And there's really actually a lot of dignity in these objections about fairness. They resonate deeply and for good reason. But putting salvation only into human hands still has access problems, doesn't it? Think about it. What about all the people historically and geographically who didn't have or don't hear the gospel to choose? That's still a problem. And really, I worry about the bigger picture. I worry sometimes about our tendency to remake God into our own cultural, smaller image that we have for him, right? I appreciate the way that uh, Jonathan Goldstein in his podcast, Heavyweight, he kind of is talking about his engagement with a woman. Um, he's Jewish and she's not Jewish. And he's kind of passionately pointing out the ways that his then fiance has different views of God than him. He has this sort of Jewish, Old Testament steeped view of God and she has this sort of middle American view. 
Jonathan's God is the God of the Bible and he's too big to know with our small brains and too not like us to know for sure in our human hearts exactly why he does what he does. And while his fiance's God has her own narrow Midwestern 7-Eleven, give a penny, take a penny sense of fair play to him. And he's just pushing on that and saying, is that how he is? I know this is a ton to take in. It requires so much more time and so many more Bible passages than I have time for in a sermon. But I just, I'm going to encourage you to this. Don't bury your good questions. Don't bury your objections. They're good. Let's talk about them. I would encourage you to, to have a dialogue with Scripture. Research them. Look at the scriptures, search the scriptures, and try to meet with somebody who maybe knows a bit more about all this or has thought about it more than you have. Again, I'm not the perfect person for everyone, but I'd be happy to have this conversation. I'm sure a lot of other people would too in this room. And so think about doing theology in community. And I also want you to, speaking of community, please know that North Cross Church is a place where we can be in theological process. Okay? It's a place where we can disagree theologically and still be in community, still be working and worshiping God together, no matter where you stand on these very difficult topics. Because really there's a danger of getting stuck in the weeds, isn't there, of these very good objections, right? We can miss the whole thrust of verses four and five. They are meant to be such a sweet, sweet comfort, aren't they? Everyone in this room has a story that hurts so bad as part of there are particular personal stories of not getting chosen, for the, not getting chosen for the job, not getting chosen for school or sports team by a potential girlfriend or boyfriend or the cool tight-knit friend group. And so we have this feeling deep inside of us of being ignored, feeling dismissed, not belonging, and that background hums, that's the background hum of our human hearts. And sometimes that breaks into our minds and our thoughts. We think things like, I have no worth. I'm worthless. I am so not useful. I have nothing to offer. I am good for nothing. And we have those moments that we point to in that narrative where we say, look, I didn't measure up there. I wasn't enough here. But notice what verses four and five are promising. Why does God the Father choose us in Jesus? Why does he predestine anyone? He does it in love, verse four. And he does it for the adoption, for adoption as sons and daughters, verse five. Faith says anyone who wants God's love, do you want that? is singled out to be oh so specially cherished by him. And anyone who wants to belong, you belong to a family of people and of a Godhead that makes you bigger than your single self. This is everything, everything you and I have ever longed for, isn't it? In the words of the singer-songwriter J.J. Heller, which is also in your meditation quotes, there's a beautiful little verse from it. It's the chorus. God is saying this, and I wish I could sing it. I love you for you, not for what you have done or what you will become. 
I love you for you. <laughs> Finally, a love I don't have to earn. Finally, a love I don't even have to live up to. God's love isn't based on your performance. It's based on his decision. And this means God has decided to love you and you can't change his mind. No matter what you do, no matter what I do, finally a love I can't lose because I never want it. Finally, God's love is a love that isn't up to me. It isn't up to my fickle feelings. It's up to God and is steadfast, never giving up on us love. And really verses four through six tell us that God's deep love is not just gripping and grandiose in a setting, nor is it just intimate and intricate in its details. God's deep love is third and finally practical and propulsive. It makes us practical and it propulses us, it moves us into loveliness and loving others and loving God. Verse four, God the Father chose in him before the foundation of the world so that, he chose us in him in the, before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you catch that so that? Did you hear these words? All of salvation was planned, was accomplished, was applied so that we can be for the purpose of our blamelessness. Blameless, free from all the guilt and all the shame and all the blame. Holy, possessing a moral purity that is moving to a time and a place of moral perfection. Right, that moment when you and I, in the words of Robert Murray McShane, when I stand before your throne, God, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see you as you are and love you with unsinning heart. What a picture, a vision. <laughs> and all this is to say, God's love makes us lovely, right? Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, found in your bulletin's meditation, the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find her lovely, but he makes her lovely. That is, a thing must be loved before it's lovable. Isn't that a beautiful idea? And the clear implication is that this unconditional, transformational love is meant to be shared. It's meant to be paid forward. We're meant to go and do likewise, aren't we? What would it look like in your life to love the unlovely? to befriend the unfriendly? What would it look like to invite the lonely into belonging? Whether that's being part of your physical families around a table or in a spare bedroom, or whether that's your spiritual family, inviting them to this church on a Sunday morning or into your life group, what would that look like? But verse six directs our love, not just horizontally, but also vertically, right? not just to other people, but to God. God the Father predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love this in the original Greek. You'll catch Paul's obsession. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us with grace in the beloved. That's how many times he uses the word grace. Into grace much, Paul? That's his thing. This verse deserves a whole other sermon, which I'm not going to give you, I promise, but suffice it to say this. Paul is all caps 
underlining, bold, italicized fonting, the before time began fact that God knew. He knew full well the trouble. He knew the heartache we were going to cause him. He knew the terrible crucifix-shaped price he would pay for us, for me. But still he delighted. He delighted in giving us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Blessings we could never imagine or even guess at. And according to verse 6, God did this so that we might praise his glorious grace. Again, I love what Hudson pointed out, that Eugene Peterson quote in your meditation. This is our destiny. This is what we are made for. We are made, we're put on this planet for a grand celebration in the full presence of God. Praise and glory. God's grace motivates us to accomplish the thing for which we are put on the planet, our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In that final Avengers movie, the end game, or end game, after some clever time travel tricks, <laughs> the Avengers superheroes refight the final battle with Thanos, who represents death. And again, despite working together with all their superpower powers, <laughs> the Avengers are losing. They're on the verge of losing to Thanos. And it's then and there that Doctor Strange looks over to Iron Man, Tony Stark, and he does one meaningful thing. He doesn't even say a word. Just holds up one finger. And Stark immediately understands. Dr. Strange is referencing that one out of 14 million, 600,005 possibility. Their one chance to win against death. And so Tony Stark makes the ultimate sacrifice. He took up all the infinity stones and he snaps his fingers and erases into dust all of death, all of this evil army, even the, and he saves simultaneously the billions upon billions of human lives. But he can only do this by sacrificing his own life in the process. This is the picture of what Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 are actually about. They're not about trying to calculate all the necessary probabilities but they're about savoring. They're about marveling at the mystery of God's deep, deep love. The love of God so gripping and so grandiose, so intimate and so intricate, so very practical and propulsive that even our science fiction and comic books can't stop writing about it. Did you notice that? And selling in the process two billion. $798 million worth of tickets. <laughs> That's the power of our God and the story, this love story that's in Ephesians 1 for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage, for the mysteries, <laughs> for the depths and the breaths and the breathtaking heights and, and devastating lows of this passage. And I pray that you'd be with that journey, that breathlessness that we all feel as a result of taking in just a bit of your wonder, a taste, a snatch of your glory. And I pray that you'd help us to breathe it in 
and breathe it out. Father, would you work in ways that only you can work in our hearts and in our minds and in this world? We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.